Let me ask us a question to get started this morning. What are some things that you do in life that isn't fun, that isn't necessarily something you enjoy doing, that sometimes hurts a little bit, sometimes is stressful, sometimes is frustrating, but it's worth it? What's something that's hard to do that you don't like, but in the end is worth the struggle? What is that for you? We all have our own list. We all choose our own list of what that would be for many of us. One example could be our jobs. Our jobs give us stress. Our jobs give us annoyance. Our jobs make us deal with people that maybe we didn't want to deal with. But it's worth it, right? You need a job to survive. For maybe some of you kids out there, it's school. You don't want to be there. You don't enjoy being there. Maybe if it was up to you, you wouldn't be there, but your parents hopefully don't let you do that. And you may not say it's worth it at that time, but many of us outside of school say, Yeah, it wasn't fun, but it was worth it. Maybe as we are in the month of January, almost towards the end of January, we're past the halfway point at this point. Maybe for some of us, early January, we start out with some New Year's resolutions and it's choosing to eat better, choosing to maybe be a little bit more active, eating the salad instead of the cheesecake. It's not fun but it's worth it, right? Getting up in the morning, going to exercise, going for that evening walk after work, it's not always fun, but it's worth it. We all make that list in our own minds and our own experiences. Let me ask you this question, and don't answer it out loud. You're not answering this one for me. This is your question to ask yourself. Is this whole Jesus thing worth it? I told you not to answer out loud. Nice. It's okay. That's fine. But seriously, ask yourself that question. We've been going through, as Pastor John mentioned, the book of 1 Peter, and we've been learning about holiness in the midst of, what was it? Suffering. We got that much, at least. That's good. Holiness in the midst of suffering. God has designed a system in which the ways that we grow closer to him are not easy, are not easily attainable, are not always enjoyable, require work, require diligence, require sacrifice, require suffering. The ways that God has designed us to grow closer to him are straight through the furnace of difficulties in life. Is it worth it? Is it worth it? Again, ask yourself that question. And it's easy to hear something like that and to go, yeah, and then when you actually are faced with that decision, it's easy to say, oh, well, yeah, but maybe not this time. For some of us, it might be easy to answer yes. For others of us who may not have been as outspoken, this may be the question you are being challenged with right now. 
This may be the struggle that you have in this time in life. Is, the, is what God is telling me to do, is that even worth the trouble of going through it? It's a very important question. And it's one that we're going to wrestle with this morning. But it's one that we're going to wrestle with by looking at two specific examples. Two examples of people that answered God's call that did what God told them to do, but it led to suffering. And we can be the judges and, uh, and ask the question, was it worth it for them? Was it worth it for them to go through that kind of suffering? Maybe that'll help us answer that for ourselves. So, without further ado, please open your Bibles to the book of 1 Peter. We're going to be in 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 18 through 22. And as you're turning there, allow me to bring you up to speed on where we're at in 1 Peter. The previous message that was preached on 1 Peter, Pastor John preached, and, and I think that passage was, was well summed up, in the, and he preached out of 13 through 17, 1 Peter 3, 13 through 17. And that, ver, that passage is very well summed up in verse 17, where it says this, For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. It is better to suffer for doing good, if it's God's will, all of this is prefaced with if it's God's will. Sometimes we make ourselves suffer unnecessarily. All of this message is prefaced with suffering according to God's will. And he kind of leaves that on the audience that, 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 that Peter was writing to in that time. But he doesn't leave it there. Instead, he gives examples of somebody else, two other examples specifically, people that chose to do good, which led to suffering, instead of two people choosing evil. And this is where we get to the passage today. I'm going to read the passage and you're going to read it, and you're going to go, oh, this is what we're doing today? Okay. And then I'm going to pray for us. And while I'm praying for us, I would ask you to pray for me. Give me wisdom of words and the ability to communicate this well, that God would work through it. So I'm going to read this passage, and then we are going to jump into a time of prayer. Please uh, join me as I, I read this passage. 1 Peter chapter 3, 18 through 22. For Christ also suffered. Once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison, because they formerly did not obey, when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is, eight persons, were brought safely through water. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. Please join me in prayer. Gracious Father, Lord, we come to you this morning. And Lord, we're thankful 
that we are here. For those that drove through the snow, we're thankful for the safe arrivals. Lord, I'm thankful for every single person that is here, whether they make this their normal Sunday morning local body that they gather in, or whether this is a new place for them. Maybe there's a bit of anxiety or discomfort for people in um, not common places or foreign places. Lord, be with them specifically. Cure any anxieties. Lord, be with all of us. Lord, you know the places that we've been this week. You know our joys and our sorrows. You know the questions we've asked you. You know the burdens we've given to you. Lord, I pray that you would meet each of us where we're at. I pray, God, that you would guide us through this passage. It is a passage that feels very foreign to our modern ears. Uh, but Lord, I thank you that, I thank you of the way you wrote your word. You didn't write it um, so that people in the 21st century U.S. could understand it, but you wrote it so that if we trust in you, if we follow your spirit, if we are diligent and, and growing closer to you, that you can give us um, answers to the difficulties in your text. Lord, I pray for this morning. Help us to wrestle with the question of choosing to suffer for you. Pray that everybody in this room would ask that question genuinely and thoughtfully, and that we would all answer that question in a way that brings honor and glory to your name. Be with me this morning. Give me the words to say to be able to encourage and convict where people need encouraging and convicting. But might that happen by your spirit's power and not by anything that I could ever manufacture on my own. We thank you, Lord, for all that you do. In Jesus' name, amen. So, as we read through this passage, bit of a weird one, right? Not very common, not something that you hear on a normal Sunday morning, not something that makes us go, oh, well, this makes perfect sense. We got this. Boom, we're out. We're done. Let's go to lunch. It takes a little bit more time to work through this passage. So we're all going to need to throw on our thinking caps a little bit extra this morning and pop the gears up a bit. And we're going to go slowly verse by verse on this one. And we're going to see if the Lord will be able to lead us to a, a proper conclusion on his text. I'm going to start in verses 18 to verse 18, and we're going to go verse by verse through this. Verse 18 says this, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. Remember I said there was two examples of people in this passage that chose to follow God's call, which led to suffering. This is one of them. We start with Jesus, with the Son of God, answering the call from the Father to go to the cross. And we would be very trivial in our faith to leave it at that. We would be very, in some ways, foolish to not recognize the totalness of the suffering that is happening in this one verse. If we leave it the way that it is, it can feel trite, it can feel flat, it can feel like we don't actually understand, to the best of our abilities, the cost that Christ paid for your soul and for mine. The scriptures tell us clearly, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, so that he might bring us to God. The foundation and hope of the Christian faith is that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Have we ever thought, have you ever thought of the pain that Christ felt on the cross? 
Have we ever thought of that? Have we ever truly took in the time to sit and to think about the total hurt and bitter suffering that Jesus encountered in that moment? And I'm not just talking about one of the most torturous ways to kill somebody that history has ever known. Because the totalness of Christ's suffering goes above and beyond that of crucifixion, being tortured and beaten and hung on a cross with nails driven into your wrists and to your feet as you slowly suffocate and die. The true suffering that Jesus encountered wasn't the crucifixion. It was bearing the weight of the sins of the world. Jesus, or the Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. And sometimes we trivialize our sins. We say they're not that bad when we say, oh, the crucifixion, that was, that was horrible. It was. It was genuinely horrible. But the true event of suffering at that point was Jesus bearing your sin and mine. And not just the sins in this room, but the sins throughout all of time. Christ died for the sins of the world. Sins past, sins present, sins future. Christ died for the sins of the world. Sin brings pain, very naturally. If you lie to somebody and they find out, it hurts. If you steal something from somebody and they find out, it hurts. If there's an affair in a marriage, it hurts. If there's a group of people that are oppressed or burdened or or deal with some outspoken burst of violence, it hurts both for the one giving and for the one receiving. All that sin does is provides pain in our lives, that pain that Jesus felt all at one time. Every effect of sin, every stain of sin fell on Jesus' shoulders. Every moment of suffering that this world has ever known fell on Jesus' shoulders when he died on the cross for you and for me. Just imagine that, all of the weight of human suffering, of evil that has happened throughout all of time, all fell on the Son of God's shoulders at that one point. This God, this Son of God that deserved perfect relationship and communion with God, with the Father, had that torn from him when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? As he dealt with the bitter reality of sin, all for following the call of God. The price of Jesus was great. The price of of Jesus was bigger than anything you and I will ever understand. And, And any of us looking at Jesus, if we take just the example of Jesus and we bring almost like this, the God question out of it, and we say, was it worth it, that pain, that hurt, that torment? Would any of us want to go through that? Would that be worth it for any of us? I don't know. Was it worth it for Jesus? It's a good question to ask. We see the what happens as a result of which, a little bit in this passage, in this verse, he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. But there's more that comes from that. 
there's more that happens after that. And that's what our next verse goes to. Was it worth it for Jesus? Well, let's find out. Verse 19. After, end of verse 18, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the spirit. Verse 19, in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. It's a short verse. It's a weird one. It's a complicated one. It's one that many have wrestled with and tried to determine its exact meaning throughout all of church history. And this is one that I'm going to be real with you. I, I struggled with all throughout this week. You can talk to some of my, my friends or, or my wife or, or, or John as well, the other pastor, of just sitting there and wrestling with what exactly is this passage saying? What exactly is going on here? Jesus goes to preach to the spirits in prison. Before I give my idea, let me be clear and suggest that this is a passage that many Christians have disagreed on. Many Christians have struggled with. I would suggest there's a general trend of what the church has said throughout 2,000 years, but it's been a struggle for a lot of people as long as we've been able to read this verse and try to figure out what it means. But what I would suggest this verse means is that this was a time after Jesus died, Good Friday, and before Easter Sunday, the resurrection, where Jesus descended into a place that you and I would call hell. Okay. Feeling a little weird yet? It's a doctrine that we don't talk about much. It's a doctrine that's fraught with all sorts of questions. But I would suggest that this is what the text is saying. Not only here, but in other passages of Scripture. This isn't just a one-verse doctrine. The Scriptures, ever, several other points in the New Testament are their examples of this point in Jesus descending. We talk about his ascension. We don't as much reference his descension. Let's read a couple of those passages. Romans chapter 10, verses 6 through 7. You don't have to turn there. I'll read them out loud to you. It says, But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart, Who will ascend into heaven? That is, to bring Christ down. Or, Who will descend into the abyss? That is, to bring Christ up from the dead. We think of Jesus dying on the cross and his body being buried. And that, that, that verb of going, of being buried, going and being buried, isn't just a, a spiritual sort of his body is bearing. But there's a physical, locational aspect of that verb as he's literally going down someplace. And this verse identifies as the abyss. We might identify it as a place called hell. But, it's, but again, not the only verse. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 8 through 9 says, Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men. Verse 9, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth? There's that other, another word, descended into the lower regions of the earth. You could say it's just really, really deep down in the earth, but... People in that time, again, the Bible wasn't written to us, but was written for us. 2,000 years ago, people had a concept of the place of the dead, the abyss, Hades, what we would call hell, was a place that was lower. It was a physical explanation of a spiritual reality. Descending into, this, into the lower regions of the abyss, what you and I might call hell. Another verse, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 6, next week. 
we're going to talk about this one as well. John, I'm praying for you. The passage says this, for this is why the gospel was preached, even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. That's a weird verse. I don't want to talk about that one too much. But what I will emphasize, the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that were judged in the flesh the way man is. There is some sort of point in which people were in which people who were already dead were preached the gospel, or in this part it says preached, proclaimed. I would make the suggestion that all of these verses speak of a time in between Good Friday and Easter Sunday when Jesus descended into the place that you and I might call hell, but that people in the scriptures might have called Hades or Tartarus or the abyss or Gehenna. All of these words are different words that communicate the same sort of place. And now again, before we go too much further, allow me to, rec- to emphasize this is a complicated topic. The scriptures are not 100% clear on this topic, and people have disagreed over the years. And the best part about this is that this isn't a gospel issue. Either way, Jesus died and rose from the dead. Either way, the gospel is still true depending on how somebody understands it. But this is my fallen, sinful human nature's explanation of what is happening in this passage. Now, many people could be led to ask a couple of follow-up questions. One of the first questions people could ask is, hey, what about when Jesus was talking to the thief on the cross and he said, today you will be with me in paradise? Doesn't that kind of mess with this whole thing? Well, to which my response is, assuming that heaven and this place called paradise and hell all work by the same time that earth works with. Again, these are spiritual realities that we as physical beings that abide by laws of time and space and physics and matter and all of that stuff, we can't fully understand how it all works. There needs to be some sort of room to allow for differences in how things work because it's outside of our complete understanding of thinking. We can't think of anything outside of physical matter, time. And so I think there is room to suggest that on Good Friday, and according to our standards of time, Jesus went to this place called paradise where the thief on the cross was. And if you were to jump to a next step on a place what we might identify as Holy Saturday, the Saturday between the death and resurrection, where Jesus spent time in this place and descended into this place that we call hell and Easter Sunday is the resurrection. I hope that that makes sense in in that sort of understanding. Again, it's a complicated passage. But again, another question you may ask is why? Why did Jesus have to, why did Jesus do that? Why did the Father make the Son of God do this, go to a place that we would call hell? Well, I think helping us understand this will not only understand what he did, but also what he didn't do. Allow me to give a couple of reasons for things that that he probably didn't do. And these have been advocated over the years, and I just don't think they hold up in the scriptures. One thing that people have said that he did, but I don't think he did, is some people suggest that when Jesus descended to hell, he had sort of an evangelistic meeting sermon, preached the gospel, and offered a second chance to people who had gone to hell. Hell being a place that we would identify where the souls of people that do not believe in God, do not have faith in God, go to after 
they die. Some have suggested it was like a second chance revival event within this place that we would call hell. I don't think the scriptures would suggest that. The scriptures seem to point to this time on earth as our time to choose to believe in Jesus. And after this time, there is no opportunity. Look at the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. The rich man is in hell. He can't get out. And so he asked Lazarus to go and warn his friends. And, and the response is, your friends have the word of God, the prophets and Moses. They have everything at their disposal to believe in God. That's their time to believe in God. Believe in Jesus now. This is our time to have faith in Christ. After death, there is no second chance. Another idea that people have suggested is that when he went and he descended into hell, he went there and he almost sort of suffered under the chains of Satan and was punished in hell for three days. This, I don't think this necessarily adds up either because it takes away from the finished work on the cross. And the passage literally just said that Christ suffered once, one time, for sins. Some have suggested it. A popular advocate is John Calvin, everyone's favorite Genevan theologian from who knows when. I don't think the scriptures hold that one up either. So, if those are things that Jesus didn't do, what did he do? Well, verse 19 is clear. It says that he proclaimed to the spirits in prison. The word there for proclaimed is making a religious, a proclamation, someone getting up on a platform and announcing to a large group of people, proclaiming. I was trying to come up with ways to explain this, and I kind of fell short in a couple of places. I, I, I've wanted to describe it almost as some sort of God-sized victory lap in which Jesus descends to hell and proclaims victory over death and Satan because of his work on the cross. But I don't think that a God-sized victory lap does this event quite justice. Because what's happening in this event is so big and powerful that that stifles it, that, that, that sells it off as being a less than event. But what's happening in this event is Jesus goes to Satan's home, goes to his own house, and says, your plan failed. Because if we look at the events of the cross from a human perspective— it kind of looked like Satan won for a moment. Judas Iscariot was tempted. He betrayed Jesus to the Jewish officials. They went to the Romans where he was crucified and God died. That sounds like a loss to me. But according to the plan of God, that is exactly what needed to happen. Satan was abiding by the rules that we think of and wasn't even thinking of the ways that God was working out his perfect plan through suffering, through the death of Jesus. And so Jesus comes down to hell, goes to Satan, goes to his allies, and basically tells him, this plan that you went through, this thing that you thought you won, this event in which you thought you'd foiled God's plan, did not work. Your plan failed. And not only did it fail, but your plan succeeded so well that it failed. God one. Jesus died, but that's exactly 
what God wanted to have happen. Jesus won. Jesus was victorious through his humbled death. Looking at another passage of Scripture, Revelations chapter 1, verse 18, the, passage, the verse says that this, this is Jesus talking, and the living one, I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Jesus has authority over the keys of death and Hades, Hades and death being these things that as far as we recognize, they were in Satan's domain. Satan had authority over this world. He was the prince of the power of the air. He was the ruler of this world. Something happened that removed this authority from Satan's hands that Jesus was able to get back and have the keys of death in Hades. Satan was once the prince of the power of the air. That was in the past age. Behold, the new age is here. The kingdom of God is here, and the rules are different. Jesus is in charge. Jesus is ruler of this world. Now, some of you might be getting uncomfortable. Wait, was Satan outside of God's control? I don't think so. To say that Satan was the ruler of this world does not necessarily mean that he was outside of God's control. We look at examples in the Old Testament as, for example, in the book of Job, Satan or the accuser had to go to God and ask permission to tempt somebody, to allow Job to go through suffering, and God gave him guidelines, and he held by those guidelines. Satan could only act as far as God allowed him to, but he was still the ruler of this world. I think of it this way. If you have a pet dog on a leash, as far as that leash extends, you've given that pet that amount of authority and ability to move in, right? You're still holding the leash. You're still in control, but that pet has the ability to freely move within those boundaries. And at any point you pull it back, they've lost that ability. Think of this as God pulling the leash back on Satan and saying, your control here, your ability to move here is severely limited. You've lost. The kingdom of God is here. You've already lost. Now you just got to wait for it. The event that's happening here is so powerful of God, of Jesus taking this authority back, ruler of this world, something that we can't even quantify in our own understanding. Let me ask again, was the suffering that Jesus went through worth it? I might say yes. I would fully and emphatically say yes. The suffering that Jesus chose to go through and following God's plan, the Father's plan, which led to his death on the cross, was worth it. Because through that, not only did he bring salvation to you and to I, but he took control and, and Satan lost his ruling and authority in this world. Jesus is ruler of this world. Satan has already lost. Death has been promised to be destroyed. We're just waiting until the return and the finalness of that. Think of it. There's a book that I read. My life group actually went through it. It was called The Explicit Gospel by Matt Chandler. Really great book. Would totally recommend it. And it talked about this gospel on the ground versus gospel in the air. And the gospel on the ground is a personal gospel. It's individual souls who are sinners and need Jesus to die on the cross for them to restore their relationship with God. That's the gospel on the ground. The gospel in the air 
is this universe-spanning gospel in which all of creation in Romans 8 was subjected due to sin entering into it as it eagerly awaits with an inward groaning the resurrection of the body. Jesus' dissension into hell is a setting things right for the gospel in the air, for all of creation having that fulfilled promise that sin is not going to stick around forever. Jesus is on the throne. We can continue on. At the end of the reading, verse 19 into verse 20 in which he went and proclaimed to the spirits in prison. Verse 20, because they formerly did not obey when God's patience waited in the days of Noah while the ark was being prepared, in which a few, that is eight, were brought safely through water. There's our second example, right? Our first example, someone following God's plan which leads to suffering is Christ dying on the cross. This example, we go to Noah, everyone's favorite ancient shipwright. Everyone loves Noah. It's a good story. We've learned about it in a couple of different places. If you remember your Sunday school days or gather and grow that we have here on Wednesdays, we, we've learned about Noah where the earth is getting really bad. God tells Noah that there's going to be a flood. You've got to build a boat to be able to survive the flood and you got to get some animals on there along the way right we all many of us understand this story but if we stop and think about this story for a moment we can't imagine it was very easy for Noah to go through that he received a calling from God and now he's got to go build a boat I don't know if the scriptures say exactly how long it took him I think they do I don't recall it but you can't imagine it happened overnight This was a big boat that took years, maybe even decades, to build. Imagine the scrutiny he must have gone through. Imagine the doubts he must have felt every single night as he finished a day of building a side of the boat. And he says, i got to build a whole other side of this stinking thing. Like, are you serious? Is this even real, God? Is this even worth it? And that's not even counting people outside of Noah. Noah and his family are alone. Nobody else in this world believes in God. He's surrounded by people that must have constantly been saying, Noah, what are you doing, man? Is this, what are you, why are you doing this? This flood's never going to happen. Noah chose the path that led to suffering as well. Now, this passage specifically mentions the spirits in prison from the days of Noah. Some have suggested that this means when Jesus descended into hell, he only talked to the spirits from before the ark. Some have suggested that. I don't think that's necessarily true because other points, it mentions people in general. It mentions the dead in general. Here it's just specific. So why specific? I think Peter's trying to pull these two pieces together. He's trying to use both of these to say one specific thing. And so here he pulls in a unique group of people that were preached to in hell from a greater general group, which is all of hell and Satan and whatever and all that sort of stuff. That's my explanation again. I am an imperfect sinner and I don't read the scriptures perfectly. So people have disagreed on this interpretation. But here's our second example. Jesus built, or Noah built an ark. Followed God's plan. Was it worth it? He made it through. He might say it was worth it. Let's read verses 21 through 22. Bring us to the end of the passage here. 
Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as the removal of dirt from the body, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. All right, verse 21. This is a verse that has given many Protestant peoples a lot of anxiety. Baptism saves you. Hold on a moment. I thought that salvation was by grace through faith. I thought I didn't, I thought there was no work that I could do to pay for my sin. Doesn't that the Bible say that elsewhere? I would say, yes, salvation is through faith alone in Christ alone. But what's going on here? Look at what the passage is saying. Baptism, which corresponds to this. What is this? This goes back to verse 20 in the events of the ark. Of Noah building an ark. Of Noah going through the flood and him and his family coming out alive. Noah could have very full believed and and lived his life saying, there's going to be a flood. God's going to bring a flood. It's going to kill everybody. And we need to build a boat to save us. But until Noah actually built the ark, did he really believe it? Until Noah actually put effort into his faith, it didn't mean anything. It was good. It was great. He was believing the right thing, but he wasn't acting on his faith. Let's take a look again at baptism. Baptism, which corresponds to this. Baptism, something that we would believe is is something you do after, based on a pre-built faith in Christ. You believe in the name of Jesus, and then you are baptized as a public proclamation and testimony to the world that says, I am a follower of Jesus, and I'm going to live my life for him. And now that I've been baptized, all of you know this. It is an action that is based on a previous faith. This gets into James chapter 2, which says, Show me your faith without your works, and I will show you my faith with my works. Faith without works is dead. Is James saying that works are what gives you salvation? No. We are saved through faith by grace in Christ. But until we act on our faith, until, we, until our faith in God does, makes us want to do something for God, there's no evidence. There's no fruit for our faith. There's reason to be in doubt for our faith. This verse is not saying that baptism saves you. Sorry, it's a lot. It's, there's bigger things going on here than just that. But what it is saying is that just as the faith and the actions of Noah building the ark and surviving the flood, so is baptism, something that happens after faith, a proof, a fruit of the faith that we have in Jesus. And it says, baptism now saves you, which corresponds to this now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, not as something that cleans you, purifies you, but as an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The more we act on our faith, 
The more we follow what God wants us to do, the more our desires line up with his. The more we're obedient to God, the more we grow closer to God, the more we look like him, resemble his character, resemble his thought pattern, and we start to want to do things that bring God glory more and more. An appeal to God for a good conscience, that inner desire of us to do something. The more we follow God's path, which in this context, leads to suffering. The more we grow closer to God, the more that our desires, our inward desires change. We, the movies we used to watch aren't really that funny anymore. This, the music that we used to listen to, it doesn't really sound all that great anymore. The things we used to say about people, it's not really that cool anymore. Our desires change. God changes us completely. Our thoughts and our habits and our patterns grow closer and closer to Jesus. Do we still sin and mess up? Absolutely. But the more we grow closer to God, the more there is an appeal to God for a good conscience. And our guarantee is through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And then we get to verse 22. Who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God with angels, authorities, and powers having been subjected to him. And this brings us to the end of our passage. And it ends off on the ascension of Christ. That final point when Jesus ascended into heaven and took his rightful chair on the right hand of the throne of God. And that is our guarantee that Jesus is the ruler of this world. In this point here at the end, it says that angels, authorities, and powers are subjected to him. That word subjected is the same word that we used a couple of months ago when we were talking about people submitting to governing authorities. When we were talking about slaves submitting to their masters, wives submitting to their husbands, all those, verse, all those sermons are back. I'm not going to get into them right now. We're our one complicated topic for a day. They're out there. You can go and find them, find our sermons on them. But when Jesus ascends into heaven, the right ordering of creation happens. The right things are subjected, are submitted to Jesus. Angels, authorities, powers, good and bad, satanic or angelic, all things fall to their knees and bow before God, who has promised that he will bring a destruction of evil in a future time. He's guaranteed it through the cross. We're just waiting for the complete, consummating expression of that when Jesus returns a second time. With all this being said, I'll bring up the question I asked you in the beginning. Is this whole Jesus thing worth it? Is it worth going through the sufferings, the struggles, the difficulties to grow closer to him? Is it worth it? It's a good question. Again, I can't answer this question for you. You don't need to answer this question for me. This is a question for you and God to ask. But I will appeal to the example of Jesus, who was obedient to God's call, went through the worst suffering in all of history, and came out on top. Ruler of this world, the guarantee that death and sin will be destroyed. The second example, Noah followed God's call built the ark, went through all of the, the, the difficulties that come from that and survived the flood. 
God filled a covenant with him, which ultimately led to God's people, Israel, which led to the Messiah, Jesus, which led to the guarantee that sin and death will be destroyed. If you asked both of them, was it worth it? Was it worth following God's plan? I can't speak on their behalf. But I can imagine that their answer would be complete and utter yes. It was hard, but it's worth it. Whatever suffering, whatever difficulties that you and I are going through right now due to our faith in Christ, if we follow Jesus' example, it is worth it. Because, if you forget, if you don't remember anything else today, remember this. Godly suffering ends in victory. Godly suffering ends in victory. It doesn't feel that way now. It doesn't feel that way maybe in this world. But the promises of God are true. That it ended in victory for Christ. It ended in victory for Noah. It ended in victory for the rest of the saints throughout the Old and New Testament, the apostles and David and all these people. And we look back on church history and remember the the famous church fathers and the martyrs and whatever, and they followed God's calling, which led to suffering. Was it worth it? I'm guessing many or all would say 100% it was worth it. But now, it's your turn to ask yourself, The question, is it worth it? And I will leave you and God with that question.